Good morning. I love that you call me Beffert. That's the greatest thing ever. Uh, glad you guys are with us and uh, you've made it through the Fayetteville tornado warning. Uh, as an Oklahoma boy, uh, Fayetteville tornado warnings don't mean the same thing as Oklahoma tornado warnings, by the way. Fayetteville tornado warnings are like, hey, there's a thunderstorm. Look out. And Oklahoma tornado warnings mean there's a tornado right there. Move. And so... Uh, I think you guys are a little gun shy, personally, but uh, we are going to continue our little series that we started last week. This is five weeks, and we're going to study the book of 1 John. Uh, Jonathan kicked it off uh, last week looking at the gospel that's in 1 John, and in turn, it was really a a, a chance for us to look at Easter and the gospel um, according to this this 1 John account. And so uh, he, he shares the power of the cross and the power of the gospel, and in turn, what that means for our lives. And it challenged us a lot on, on who do we love and who do we follow. And so the, the, the title of this series is Who Do You Love? And from what I'm told by people that are older than me, there's an old song called Who Do You Love, right? So I'm not exactly sure how it goes, but it's Who Do You Love? Something or another. So I don't know if I was really around when that song came out. But uh, Who Do You Love? The idea of this series is we have to, to really ask ourselves some questions about this. And I'm going to ask that you don't blow past this or that you avoid this, but that over the next few weeks, you'll study First John with us and you'll let God speak to you and, and really take a look at your heart and go, who do I really love? What is my heart really about? What do I care about? What's important to me? We're going to look at that over and over. It's a theme that you see in this book over and over again. Today, we're going to look in the second chapter. Um, we don't really have time to cover the entire chapter. If you guys know me, Uh, we would not have time to get even close to covering the whole chapter. And so we're going to look at just the first 17 verses, uh, and we're going to kind of jump around between the 17. So hang on, it's going to be okay. So we're going to jump around. We're going to start in verse 12 uh, of chapter 2. So we'll just dive right in. Verse 12. I am writing to you, Uh, Little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you. Are you seeing what we're learning right now? We're learning about who he's writing to, right? Pretty similar, so pretty easy. He's going to go over who is he writing to. Let's keep going. Uh, This is the end of 13. Uh, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He's being very clear with who he's writing to, his, who his audience is. And this is important for us to, to get because the context of this book is important so we understand who he is like speaking to and in turn what that means for us. And so he's speaking to these little children and these, uh, these young men and these fathers and he goes through all these things and he says that they know, they know the Lord, they've been forgiven of their sins. So he's basically going, these are believers. These are people that know Christ. And you notice a couple things in this. The first is he's speaking to them like family. He's using the words little children and, and fathers and young men. And uh, he, he, he's trying to, this is not a degrading term. This is not him being like, oh, poor little children running around with no hope. He's using this as a, a term of endearment, saying, I love you. You're my little child. You're my young men. And I want to coach you and give you wisdom and insight and help lead you. You know, we pick up a lot from our fathers and from our parents, right? And we learn a lot of things, some good, some bad. So you look at, uh, you know, like that commercial for cable and it's like, 
when your cable goes out, you hit things. And when your daughter sees that you hit things, she hits things. And then she gets kicked out of school. And then you have a baby with a dog collar or something like that, you know? Like, you learn a lot of things from your family. My, my sister, when she was nine years old, uh, my dad loves the Red Sox. We were born and raised Red Sox fans. And so, uh, as a nine-year-old girl, my sister memorized the starting lineup to the 1986 Boston Red Sox. I mean, that was what she knew because that's what her father was, was teaching her. I mean, he taught us other good things. No offense, Dad, if you're listening on podcast. Um, like he taught us good things, but what you've got to notice here is that, that what John is saying is I'm trying to teach you and give you wisdom and insight. I have important things to tell you. That's the first one. The second thing you notice is that it's uh, to a bunch of believers that uh, it doesn't really matter where they are uh, in their maturity. It says little children, just you know, someone that's new in their faith that maybe is just getting all this figured out. It says young men, people that are growing and maturing in their faith. And it says to fathers, those who are leaders and mentors. He's speaking to all believers across the spectrum. And what that means for you and I today is that if you know Christ, if you have received the forgiveness he offers, if you uh, uh, claim to follow him, then this is written to you. Then pay attention. If you don't know the Lord, if you're kind of checking out church, you maybe don't know exactly what you believe, then we're glad you're here and that's a good thing. We hope that you find some stuff in this message that challenges you, maybe makes you think, that you see a a group of believers that are in worship of the Lord, and that you have some questions when you leave. But pay close attention that, that this passage is written to people who know Christ. So for Fayetteville, Arkansas, Bible Belt, American Christian like culture, this is written to most of us, right? Because we claim to know this. We claim to know the truth. So pay attention. John is, has some insights. He has some things he's noticed that he wants to challenge us with. Some things he wants to share. And so what we'll do is we're going to look at three pieces of this passage. I think they're going to have a similar theme, so let's go through them. Uh, The first piece is verse 3 through 6. It says this, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And we're going to skip to verse 9. This is our second little piece. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then we jump to 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. And the one who does the will of God lives forever. So John has a similar theme that he's pointing out in all three of these. He points out that people claim one thing, right? They say, hey, I believe in God or I follow God, but then they don't obey the commandments, right? Or, hey, I'm in the light. The second part says people say they're in the light, but yet hate their brother. 
The third one says to not love the world, but to love the Father. And if you love the world, you are not in love with the Father. So you see this consistent argument through here that that there are people that are claiming to follow Christ, but who live lives that look very different, who don't follow through with this. And he says this over and over in this passage, points that out, that we claim things but don't live it. So just like I could claim to be a defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know why you chuckle. But I, I, you know, I, I could claim to be that. I could go buy a jersey. I could, go to the, uh, I could go to the stadium on Sundays. And I could claim and say, see, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. Look at me. I could tell you all about it. I could know the stats. I could know everything that's going on. But that doesn't really mean my entire life. It means I'm not really a Cowboys defensive lineman, right? Even though I'm claiming this, I'm not really living it out because I'm in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And you think about it, and, and, and really, uh, if I was a Dallas Cowboys defensive lineman, it would change everything about me, right? I would drive an Escalade with rims, and I would uh, live in Dallas in a big house, and I would probably be a little bit stronger, but I would, I mean, my entire life would be different. Everything about me would be different. Where I spend my time, I'd have practice during the week, I'd have to do rehab and workouts, and I'd have all these different things. I'd have to sign autographs, well, I mean, I do that anyway, but you know, I'd have to sign autographs and all these different things. Like, my life would be completely different. If I claimed it and it was true, then my life would be different. But I think what John's saying here is that That's kind of what we do with our faith is we claim it, but our life really isn't any different. It's just like me claiming to be an NFL superstar. Just because I claim it, my life doesn't show that. And he's saying the same thing in this passage over and over again. If we were really on the team, if we were really following Christ, then our life would have really been changed by the power of the cross. There would be no doubt You wouldn't just show up on Sundays in the uniform, but instead your entire life would be changed. Everything would be different. And I think there's an important um, idea here as to why this happens, as to why we are so prone to claim one thing but live something else. I think it's because we choose to live lives that separate the sacred from the secular. Listen again, we choose to live lives that separate the sacred from the secular. The sacred being what? Our faith, our spiritual lives, coming to church, worship, small groups, quiet times, the Bible, like rhymes we learned as kids, Christmas plays, I don't know, giving money every once in a while. We think church is a good idea, so we come to church and we bring our kids along because that was good for us when we were growing up because I'm supposed to go. So we have this sacred part of our lives, this church part, this God part, this spiritual part. And then you have the secular part of your life. This is the rest of your lives. This is really everything else wrapped into one. This is our jobs and and how we act at work. This is our friendships and the way we treat our kids. This is how we love our spouse or maybe don't love our spouse. This is the way we spend our time. This is the way we spend our money. So we do on Friday and Saturday nights. It is every aspect of our life over here is our our secular life. But then we separate and pull our sacred life over here. And this causes us to claim this. We claim, hey, I, I believe this. this is, I know the language. I know how this works. I come to church. Of course I do. 
But yet in my secular world, when I'm actually living my life, there's not a connection. We treat them like they're mutually exclusive. Or if I can use like a psychological term, we compartmentalize our life, right? We compartmentalize our, our, our sacred part and say, this only comes out at certain times. We pull out the, the, the Jesus box at certain times and we're like, oh yeah, see, I love Jesus. Then we put him back in the box and set him down so we can go live our lives. And that explains how we can do this. How we can, how we can follow in line just like John's saying in this, that we claim one thing, but don't live that out. So listen to me. This is important to get. They are not separate. This isn't mix and match. This isn't pick when you want to do this and when you don't. They are not separate. The sacred and the secular are not in two distinct chunks of your life that you get to pick. And this is exactly what John is going over. The gospel of Christ, Easter Sunday, what we talked about last week, demands so much more than this, this weak separation. Luke 5, when the disciples were call, called to follow Christ, they left everything to follow him. Romans 12 calls us to be a living sacrifice. We are to turn from our old self because new things have come. We are a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5. We have to stop separating the two. We claim the sacred, we claim to love God and claim to walk with him, but then our lives look totally different. And I'm not, I'm not saying then that we need to remove ourselves from the secular world and be monks that wear our robes and be at church all the time and never think about anything or never go anywhere or don't have jobs because you kind of need those. Like, I, I'm not saying that. You don't remove yourself from the secular world. The difference is that your sacred life, the heart for God, infiltrates and covers everything else. It's not separate. It's a part of everything else. You honor him with your work. You talk about him when you pick up the kids from school. You seek him first. You dedicate time to him. You share his lessons and his provision. The words you use, the way you act, your thoughts and your choices, every piece of your life is covered and infiltrated by him. And so what we have to do today is we have to take a long, hard look at our own hearts and our own lives. That you have to examine where you are. And if this is an example of who you are and how you live, do you choose to separate the two to go, well, I believe God when I need to believe in him, but then in my regular life, in my sacred life, I live how I want to live. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three passages again, just real quick. And it's going to give us some insight into some specific ways that we separate the sacred from the secular. It's going to get a little sticky. It might get a little uncomfortable. And I think that's okay. So if you look back at three through six, you know, he's referring, he, what he's saying is he's saying people have, are claiming to know him, but then don't keep the commandments, right? Or there are people that by their actions say, well, I abide in him, but they don't walk in the manner of Christ. And this is where the separation really comes in. Because we know these things. 
Just like, just like this, this first verse three through six, we know the stuff. You can, you can say John three sixteen. you know the great commission, you know most of the 10 commandments, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? We know these things, they're all up here. The issue is that they don't always come out. Do we really keep his commandments? Do we really walk like Christ? Do our, lo- do our lives show Christ to the world or just a religious version of ourselves? Do we care for the poor and hurting? Do we pray without ceasing? Are we making disciples? Do we give freely and generously? See, the bar that John raises is very high. He's not saying uh, you get to give part of your life when you want and when you'd like to. God's commands are very clear. We usually like the ones that are like comfortable and easy, like don't murder. You know, we're good with that one. But we have a lot more trouble with some of the other ones. So we kind of pick and choose. Matthew 6, 24, this is uh, Jesus in the, during the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets to the point that he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will, despise, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so we make our choice by trying to love both. By assuming you can keep them separate and, and enjoy both of them and love both of them, you already have made your choice. Because you haven't chosen to be fully devoted to God. You've made your choice to say, well, kind of both, when I want. I separate the sacred from the secular. And so we choose the things that are comfortable or, or we, we, we avoid the sacred because there's not enough time for that. We allow it to squeeze out our time for church or I can't go to small group, we don't have time. We don't dedicate time to, to reading, uh, reading the Bible or, or studying scripture or uh, talking with a pastor or a mentor or praying with our family. See, we allow our secular world to squeeze out and push out all of the sacred things. So I'm too busy for that. I can only slide in for church a little bit late. It's only an hour, so I like coming to this church because I can get it in and get it done. And so what this does is we, we, we really have separated these two when it comes to our faith and our life. The commands we're supposed to follow, the way we're supposed to live. And so perhaps this is you today. And you need to evaluate yourself in light of verses three through six. And you acknowledge, Lord, I have, I have claimed you, but I don't follow through uh, with your commands. I don't, I don't walk in a manner that looks like Christ. As a church, we desire to help shape men and women, college students, high school students, and everywhere in between to deeply care about their faith, to pursue an intimate walk with God, to obey his commandments, and to walk like Christ. Ephesians 5 calls us to imitate him. John 15, to abide in him. And so is that you? Is that me? What are other ways that we separate the two? Look at verse 9 through 11. And here's where he's uh, talking about those who claim to be in the light but yet hate their brother. But yet the ones that love their brothers are the ones that that abide with the Lord. 
that abide in the light. And so we've heard this so many times. You've heard this enough that you're kind of like rolling your eyes going, yeah, yeah, here the preacher goes talking about loving people and treating people well. And so what do we do? We kind of grade ourselves real quick. We're like, well, it's kind of mean to that person because uh, they wanted to kick me out of my house as a landlord and cancel my lease and now I have to find a new place to live. It's a personal one. Uh, or maybe uh, you kind of grade yourself and you go, oh, I'm kind of nice and I do okay and I helped that lady when she dropped her keys. Uh, I'd give myself like a B, maybe a B minus in terms of loving people. So we kind of check out, we tune out and we go, I'm doing okay when it comes to loving people. When it comes to treating people with love, when it comes to being in the light, we kind of look at that and we go, yeah, see, I'm in the light. But yet if we're honest, are we hating our brother on the side? Are we not loving people well, encouraging people well, serving people well? When we separate the sacred part of our lives from the secular, we are blind to the deeper calling of Christ on our hearts to proactively love, serve, and sacrifice for others. Instead, we have a mindset uh, of loving people that is kind of self-focused and reactive. We react to what they do. Oh, they did that for me, so I guess I should be nice back to them. How long will that last with Meg if I treated her like that, right? <laughs> if it was always reactive. And so we kind of judge ourselves. And we're like, well, I was kind of nice, or I wasn't that bad, or I was kind of mean. And we, we give ourselves a quick grade. But I think what Christ calls us to is something so much more. Uh, Titus puts it this way. Uh, actually, Paul puts it this way in the book of Titus, chapter 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. See, his love was not reactive. His love was not uh, selfish. It was selfless and it was proactive. He came to us. He came from heaven, the creator of all things, to the creatures and said, I will die for you. My love is proactive and it is selfless. What if he loved like we do? What if it was instead, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? What if it said, while we were yet sinners, Christ decided that we didn't deserve it, so he was going to wait to see if we did enough for him, or he might just see if he has time tomorrow to help us out. I mean, what if that's the way he loved us? So the calling on our lives is then to love like he does. This passage says, you don't get to claim this, say, oh, I'm in the light, but then not love people well. We love like Christ did. There's no option here. There's no picking and choosing. This isn't, well, they were mean to me, so I don't have to love them. This is every relationship, every choice, every interaction, every conversation. Men, you set the tone for your house on this. How you proactively and unselfishly love and serve your wife and your kids. This doesn't stop when you go to work. This doesn't stop when you're in class. This doesn't stop with your roommates. A life of love and sacrifice is something that pours out of a heart fully devoted to the Lord. Someone who abides in him, who gives each and every interaction an opportunity to show grace and mercy to others. I can't go through enough examples or enough situations. I, can't, I don't know your life. I don't know every moment of your day. But I do know what this passage says, and I know what God has called us to. Is He's saying you love all the time. 
proactively and selflessly like Christ did for us. And the third one in in 15 through 17. This is where he's referring to the world, right? He refers to the, for us not to, to love the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he refers to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And he calls us on all these. And I think that we are probably, uh, we recognize this the most, but yet it's the one that is uh, so deeply ingrained within us that we don't know how to get rid of it. It's easy to point out in someone else's life, but so much harder to get rid of in our own. And what blows my mind with this idea, okay, when it comes to separating our, our sacred life from our secular when it comes to loving the world, when it comes to uh, uh, choosing our lusts of the flesh, eyes, boastful pride of life, what, what blows my mind with this is how blatantly we disregard this. I mean, this is really, uh, we, are, we are naive almost to how, how powerful this is. We are deceived. Uh, that's really how the enemy works, right? He, he deceives us, helps us try to think like, well, maybe this isn't, Uh, that important. Maybe I really can come to church and hear these things and sing these songs, but then live a life that is so much different. And that's what we do. I mean, how else can you explain uh, a pastor in a church that gets caught cheating, sleeping around with prostitutes? How else can you explain high school and college kids who party like crazy, get drunk as all get out, and wake up in some random bed, but then have to make it to church the next day? How else do you explain uh, a, a mom who spends all her money on things to make her think she feels better, but then doesn't have money to give to anyone else. How do you explain these things? This is a blatant disregard. I don't understand this disconnect here because we separate our sacred life and our spiritual life so far and we lie to ourselves so much that we've lost it. We don't even realize that we've done it. I mean, it literally doesn't, I don't understand this this disconnect. Scripture tells us that the enemy is like a lion that is uh, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy us. He wants to bury you. He wants to take you down. He wants to take you out. And he uses all the tricks in his book. He puts our greatest desires before us, and he whispers to us just like he did to Eve. God didn't really mean that, did he? I mean, what's it going to hurt? You deserve this. You need this. This is what's going to make you feel better. This is what's going to make you happy. And the lusts of our flesh are available at our fingertips. The lusts of our eyes trot out before us. Our pride swells within us. We turn from the truth of scripture. We ignore what we know about God and what he said to us. And we cave over and over again. We cave to the world and our lusts of the flesh desires, uh, our boastful pride of life over and over again. And I know for each of us, this looks uh, very different. But you have to examine your own heart and your own struggles. Mine are going to be different than yours. But what is this for you? How are you separating this secular life and these choices you make from what you believe and what you claim to know? I promise that the longer you deny it and the more you separate your choices and the more you ignore the gospel the harder you will fall. A hundred years ago today, uh, the Titanic sank. I haven't seen the movie, believe it or not, but I know that it sank. 
But the issue is this. Uh, a lot of us would say that it sank because it ran into an iceberg. But, it, but history would show that a lot of other ships had run into icebergs before and this hadn't happened. It would be really difficult, extremely difficult for an iceberg to penetrate the double thick steel that makes up the hull of this ship. Be extremely difficult. And so as they looked back, uh, they found out that it wasn't the iceberg that really sank the Titanic. It was three million faulty rivets. The company that had built and made the rivets to use to like bolt the, uh, the hull of the ship to the steel, they cut corners. They decided to save a few bucks and not use uh, uh, the best grade of steel that they could. They used substandard iron to save a few dollars. And so the force of the collision created immense pressure and the rivets is what gave. Those small choices, those small things is what caused the Titanic to go down. And so you look at your life and you look at my life and we separate these decisions and we say, these are just small little decisions. This is just what I like and this is what makes me feel good. And we look over here at our secular life and we go, this is what I want to do. but we were just like the Titanic. That those small decisions, that those small things, these desires, the lusts of our flesh, the lusts of our eyes, our pride, those are, those are the same things that doom us. Just like the rivets on the Titanic, these small things or what doom each of us. And so what do we do? Right? I think the answer is in verse 1 and 2. John says this, My little children, like a father to his kids, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. A little late for that, right? But he continues, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. See, this is what gets lost. This is what gets forgotten. This is what changes things. That we were bought with a price. That we will no longer allow ourselves to turn our back on him that died for us. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our entire life is with him. Every single piece. My life is now his life. It is for him. There is no area that I can remove. There is no secular side that I pull off to the side. Every part of you is given back to him because of what he did on the cross. He is our advocate. He's the one that stands before the judge and says, I died for him. He is free to go. Alan's sins do not count against him anymore. He is the propitiation of our sins, which means he paid the debt that I earned. My sins earned me a debt and he paid that. This passage over and over is saying, how can you continue to ignore him? How can you claim him but not live for him? Because of what he did for us, how long can you continue to separate 
the sacred from the secular. How long, church? How long will we do this to the one who saved us? How long will we choose our ways over his ways? How long will we ignore his commands? Will we walk in the darkness? Will we hate our brothers? Will we love the world and the less of our flesh? How long? For some of us, this is uh, going to be deeply personal. And there are things that are stirring in your head and your heart that you have got to uh, deal with this morning that you need to confess and you need to work through. You need to talk to someone. You need to spend time in prayer. Take the time to do that. Don't let this go. There are choices that we're making. There are things that we're deciding that, that, that cause us to separate and turn from God and live our sacred lives and turn our back on, turn our secular lives and turn our back on the sacred. Some of us need to make some very practical changes. We just need to stop doing some things. We need to change the way we make decisions. But I encourage you at this point that, that you allow the gospel of Christ, you allow the advocate, the one who paid for our sins, when, when he is, is, is king, when he is on the throne, then every part of your life will change. He infects every other aspect, every part of your secular life. When the sacred rules on top, it covers everything else. It changes everything else. But see, the sad part is, some of us will choose to ignore this as well. We'll walk out and go, yeah, that was cool, or that was good, or I'm glad we went to church. And just like we separate the secular from the sacred, we'll do that again today. This won't have a deep effect on us. We won't really... Go before the Lord with this. So, how long, church, will we continue to separate the sacred from the secular? How long will we turn our backs on the one who died for us? To claim it, but not live it. Let me pray. Father, uh, we acknowledge our sin before you today. God, that we are quick to, to choose our own ways over your ways. Lord, we confess that we claim you, but that we don't live this out. Lord, forgive us for that. Lead us to repentance, Father, that your grace and mercy, what was done on the cross, Lord, may it lead us to repentance, to change, to living fully for you every part of our lives. Lord, that we no longer separate the sacred from the secular, that we allow you to penetrate every part of us, every thought, every word, every interaction, every relationship. Lord, we need you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.